Monty Padasar, I am so excited to have you here with me for 20 Questions With. I have spent so many hours watching you play cricket for England. Of course, you are most famous for being a great spin bowler. You played 50 times for England, but I cannot shake the memory of staying up into the early hours in 2013, I think it was, when you helped save that test match in the third game of a three-match series against New Zealand with Matt Pryor. As a batsman, you did the same in 2009, early on in that Ashes series against Australia in Cardiff. I think it was with Jimmy Anderson and that set the tone for the series which we went on to win you did that also as a batsman your average as a, a test batsman was under five which makes it all the more remarkable and shows I think what a great desire to win you had as a player how much you wanted to win for your country crucial roles you were mocked at times or people laughed at least at your fielding in the early days but you built a great rapport with the with the England fans I think you're a fan of the Barmy Army. You seem to have had so much fun playing for your country and I'm just thrilled that you're joining me for 20 Questions With. So let's start with the first question. Try to convey to us, if you can, and it's difficult, I know, because your experience as having played international cricket is so alien to someone like me and millions of others who grew up wanting to play cricket for our country. What is it like when you're out there in the middle and you are bowling to one of the all-time greats, Sachin Tendulkar? How does that work? What's going through your mind? He was your first test victim, your first test wicket. You got him again, I think, in a test match in England. You got him at least twice in your test career. What was that like? Yeah, look, it was a surreal moment, really. It's like, you know, sometimes when you go to India, you realise how much of a th- these godlike figures they are. You know, cricket's a different environment over there. Um, there's a lot of people who just follow them and uh, it- it's an unbelievable following that they have. And to deal with under that pressure and then to, you know, to get for, for me to bowl to someone like him, it was a huge privilege and honour. And, and also it was like a test of myself, a test of my character, a test of like what, what, where I am as a human being, you know, what, what, what thought processes are going through my mind, um, emotionally, how am I feeling? And I think I felt always when I was calm, when I was focused, when I had a clarity of thought uh, about my, let's say, processes, about, you know, just uh, like, you know, I remember bowling in my train tracks, you know, railway train tracks, being in that sort of that tightness in my bowling, um, getting my fingers over the ball, completing my fingers. So the fish hook, getting my hips over, up and over, bowling, getting the ball to drift from outside off stump into middle stump. So you end up focusing a lot more tighter you know, and, and you end up like raising your game more because you know of how great Sachin Tendulkar is, that you've actually, the pressure is, you're more scared of the boundaries that he's going to hit you. So you end up bowling better deliveries. And uh, the consequence of that was that I ended up getting a wicket. And um, I couldn't believe it. It was my first test wicket. I was so excited. It was like, you know, dreams coming true. I just, you know, something you just dream about. But you think, oh, that will never happen in a million years. And let's be honest, I dreamed about it, but let's be realistic. Getting Tendulkar as your first test wicket, that's never going to happen. But when it did, it was unbelievable. I, I, that, that celebration became, came because of the way I got Tendulkar out. And it was the disbelief, the sheer disbelief I got him out and the super sort of like a firecracker launched into space. It just really felt like that. And I couldn't believe it, like how happy I was, how delighted. And now looking back at it, probably because he's so great, because he was unbelievable player, that complete disbelief of getting him out was one of the reasons why I started celebrating like that. 
And he, I think, presented you with the ball with which you got him out at the end of the day's play or the end of the game. Yeah, and the physio came up to me because you want Sachin to sign it. I was like, are you for real? You're <laughs> He's going to sign the cricket ball that I got my first test wicket with. I'm not really sure. Uh, I said, yeah, fine, that'd be great. And he signed and he goes, once in a blue moon, mate, never again. When you were a young boy growing up in Luton, your parents had come to this country from India. Did you ever imagine that you might one day represent your country at cricket? Was that an ambition of yours? Was it a serious ambition? Or was it the sort of dream that I had as a young boy that I might one day play cricket and my dad might be able to come and watch watch me around the world? Yeah, it was just a dream for me. I, I never thought would it ever become a reality or not. But it was like an unknown dream that got me up every morning, got me playing cricket. It was that dream of like, I want to play for England one day. So that's one of the reasons why I kept on, you know, like maybe I've taken three or four wickets, but no, I want to take a five because I want to play for England. So it, it's just things like that, that when you're, it's an unknown. You never think, am I ever going to play? Am I good enough? You don't really know these questions, but it's like, a, all right, it's a dream out there. And I'm, I've just said to the universe, I want to play for England. And then I chased that dream. And that's all it was. And as I start chasing it, then you start meeting the right people, you get the right advice, you get the right guidance, and you keep then building towards chasing that dream. And that's all it is, you know, like, that's all it was. I chased that dream. And God was kind. He made that dream come true. It wasn't all it was, of course, because you had a lot of natural ability as well. I'm curious to know about a moment when I think you were 16 years old, and a coach suggested that you stop being a medium pacer, a medium pace bowler, and become a spin bowler. That was a, obviously a crucial moment, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a really big moment in my life. That was like uh, that moment where Paul Taylor from Northland said, look, you know, you're not going to make it as a seam fast bowler. You're just not quick enough. But maybe you can try and become a spinner. You've got long fingers and big shoulders. So when I did that and I bowled the first couple of balls, they turned square. And he, he goes, this is unbelievable. You should you should continue with it. Then up next game, I played uh, against Worcestershire under 15s uh, at Royal Grammar School, and I took seven for 35. And I went back to Paul Taylor, and he goes, "Yeah, you know, he goes, you should be playing. You, you know, you should be playing. Uh, uh, you should be bowling. Actually, sorry, you should be bowling left arm spin." And that's all I did. And then that was it. You know, like there's so many times in life where you have to meet the right people at the right time, and talent takes you so far. And that was that moment where you know he's kind of my cricket. Messiah of cricket, where it was the right time, right place. Paul Taylor, left arm seamer, was at Northlands, under 15 coach. I was a left arm seamer. He just thought maybe you should try spin. So, you know, I think them sort of moments in life is what propels you even further. It's meeting the right people at the right time. And I've been very lucky in cricket like that. When I was with Essex, there was John Charles, who was a left arm spinner, he was a second team coach. Then I had Nick Cook, who was the left-arm spinner at Northants. He played for England himself, didn't he? Yeah, played for England himself. So these guys helped me, helped me with my career, helped me with my you know bowling left-arm spin. Is it true that you have unusually large hands and that that has helped you as a spin bowler? And if it is true, how big are they exactly? Yeah, look, my hands are probably you know quite big fingers. They're like I think the fifth size is the same size as Tyson Fury. What's the same size as Tyson Fury's? The fist size? Like my fist, the width of my fist. Wow. Yeah, so so apparently like I've got really long fingers and that really helped me to bowl it with pace and get my fingers to get over the ball. And if you have shorter fingers, what ends up happening, you end up bowling it slightly slower to give yourself a chance for the fingers to get over the ball. But when you have long fingers, it's like, you know, it's like a, a catapult, you know, the longer you pull it back, 
then the further it goes, the same thing with the ball here. You know, you get the long fingers will then, you could generate the pace and you can get the, the, the fingers over the ball. So I was, that was my strength. I was able to bowl with pace and get the ball to turn with pace, where a lot of spinners in world cricket couldn't do. It's very interesting to me personally because I've got quite small hands or certainly quite short fingers. And as a, a wannabe fast bowler, I kind of told myself that I felt that this was holding me back because I wasn't able to get a big enough grip on the ball and the ball would sometimes slide out. And I I don't know whether there's any truth in it, but that's how, that's how I felt. Yeah, sometimes it is like that, you know. You can tell by your biomechanics, your fingers, your body, what whatever you can do. And I find it very natural, my fingers to like really wrap over the ball and, and turn it quick. And that was that was my strength. So am I right in saying that you played your first first class game at the age of 19, but your development there, your progress in the first class game perhaps wasn't as quick as it might have been because you were studying at Loughborough University? Yeah, I had the choice. Nick Cook said to me, look, if there's 100 cricketers, 99 of them are told go to university. But with you, I just think you're going to make it. You're going to play for England. I don't think you should go to university. But then I still went to university because I got the best of both worlds. I got the best of studying got the best of cricket and Graham Dilley at the time, you know, rest in peace. He's obviously not with us anymore, but he really backed me. He thought, you know, you're unbelievable bowler. The way he saw me, I was a natural cricketer. And then I went there. And then the year after that, I went to the Rod Marsh Cricket Academy. And, you know, he believed in a lot in me as well. And rest in peace for him as well, you know, because he said to me, Monty, you've got deficiencies in your game, but you will, I think, play for England because you've got the ability to do that. And he was absolutely spot on. I was 21. At 23, two years later, I played for England. And I remember Duncan Fletcher coming to watch me bowl at North Ants against Gloucester when John T. Rhodes was the overseas cricketer. And I bowled in that game, but I didn't bowl very well. If I bowled well in that game, I probably would have played against maybe Zimbabwe instead of Chris Schofield, I think. So it was like that, touch and go, touch and go. It's interesting that John T. Rhodes was the overseas player in that game because, of course, he's famous for being one of the greatest fielders of all time, the South African player. You, you're you famous or infamous for not being that good at fielding, certainly early on in your career. And you had a sort of, there was a pantomime, pantomime personality almost that the fans gave you, wasn't there, Monty, that the England fans gave you? They sometimes cheer if you did the most basic fielding correctly. How was that for you? Did you join in with the fun in that? Did you enjoy that? Or did sometimes that get to you? Well, I just try to join in with the fun because that was my mechanism to just to have the fun with it and not let it get to me so that I can focus on my cricket or my building. And I, but I didn't help myself, let's be honest, you know. I dropped basic catches. I made the most embarrassing mistakes at international cricket when I, I was at Laws. I was running to save a boundary down to mid-off I saved it from the boundary, slid, then my foot went over the line and then I threw the ball back. And then that was four runs. So that was a very embarrassing moment for me. 2006 in Mumbai, Dhoni hit the ball in the air. I thought it, I couldn't see it over the sun and it landed like 10 metres in between me and Jimmy Anderson. And, um, you know, and then two balls eight, I got him out. So that's the context of sport as well. You know, one minute, one game, you're zero. Next minute, you're a hero. And that's the balance that sometimes, you know, you have to then take it with laughter. You have to not take yourself so seriously because the, the game itself can eat you away. If you just take everything so seriously, you've got to, you've got to have that fun element uh, within yourself. 
And you've spoken before, haven't you, about the importance of people, players making their debuts, debutants, enjoying it and, and having a positive mindset. And they might end up doing better than they, they thought. That you go with that feel-good factor. And you, in order not to get overawed by the occasion, I imagine, in order not to, to cramp up in, in order to give you your best. Yeah, look, I think a lot of people now talk about being in the flow, not in the moment. Being in flow means like you're emotional, you're mental, you're physical, you're spiritual, all your energy comes together. Now, I'm from Sikhism. To Sikh, we are taught always to be in the flow. We are we are always taught, you know, to be uh, one with universal energy. We we are taught like oh, the universe. There's there's a massive one force of nature that is evolved in the universe. That just is through the trees, through the animals, through every lingual force. There is there is there is a there is a thing out there, you know, which uh, we can't describe and we don't know what it is as an, a sixth sense or invisible force. But we're also told to celebrate, to be in the moment. So this is the, you know, I was already like that, but I didn't, I couldn't explain it. <laughs> but now I'm probably have a better understanding of, right, when I get in the England team, 30,000 fans, I've got the ball in my hand, I've got the best player I'm bowling against. I'm in my zone. I'm in my flow. I'm in my flow now. I'm not going to let anything get away. I'm going to bowl my best delivery. I'm going to get the guy out. And I'm going to enjoy that moment when I get that wicket with the fans, celebrate. These are all moments of being in in the moment of being in flow. And that, as a sportsman, every sportsman craves to be in that position because you play your best cricket. There's no thoughts. There's no nothing. You play with instinct. You You, you don't get bombarded by the big occasion. You enjoy it, you embrace it, you have fun and you want more of it. And then you end up enjoying it, you end up getting more of it then. But Monty, form, as we know, comes and goes. I mean, there are, there are probably a handful of players who are almost always in, in form. How do you deal with things when they're not going so well? And do the doubts creep in? Did the doubts ever creep in with you, Monty? How did you cope with that and deal with that? I think what you do, you fake it. You fake it in your body language. I remember Shane Moore telling me, he goes, Monty, he goes... I some there's days when I'm not great. I don't bowl well, but what I do is even if I bowl a rubbish ball and it hasn't turned, have a follow through like it's turned big. I've, oh, I've got him! Oh, break the theatre. He hasn't turned. Oh gosh, nearly got him. Hey, I'm Maddie, Maddie P, mate. We're gonna get him out here. Come on, man. This, oh, you missed that one. That was turning big, and, and you just, just you just self affirmations. Then, then you start faking it. And then you take your time even slower. You spin the ball in your hand, create the theatre, bring another man in. Go to the captain, Straussy, mate. I reckon we get square leg up because I don't think he's going to sweep me. And then you bowl the same ball as a straight delivery. He sweeps it, middle stump, he misses it and you get a wicket. And then you celebrate like, oh my God, that was the biggest, you know, game plan in the world. And that theatre and the showmanness, like you call being the entertainer. Spin bowlers are like that. We all go to sleep in the dressing room. Right, I don't know why we all sleep with it. I spoke to Harbhajan Singh, Warney, Phil Tufnell, all the great spinners. They go, we love a sleep. I don't know why, because I think what ends up happening when we're bowling, the scent we are the center of attention. We've got all the fielders around us. They love the oohs, the ahs, you know, the turning ball, the non-turner, the theatre. We're going to be the match winners. They love the, the the mystery of spin. And we've got to embrace all of that. And that's why we switch off completely. Because when we're on the field, we've got to be on it. 
Did you feel more pressure in the second innings of the game, particularly a, a fourth innings of the game, when there might have been an expectation on you if you were the only spinner or on you and the other spinner if, you were, if there were two of you to win the game for your team? It was the question of, do I feel the pressure of winning or do I want to become the match winner? I want to become the match winner. I'm, you look on the badge, you know, you have the three lions, you have your test number, 631. You have these special things which are personalised just to you. You're like, I want, and you look at the Barmy Army fans, you look at the crowd, you see the lords, you look at everyone's watching you. You're like, this is, this is what I've played cricket for. You know, as I'm walking back and I'm looking back, I'm thinking, this is what I played cricket for. I played cricket to, to play for my country, to win test matches for my country, and then afterwards become the match winner and then celebrate the moments with everyone, you know? Then you have the choice. Do I embrace it or do I think this is too much for me? I can't do it. I've been, I've been pushed. I've been taught by my family, by my parents. Embrace these moments. Celebrate your moments. You know, take a wicket. Do not stop celebrating. Michael Vaughan said that to me. He goes, Monty, do not stop celebrating. It's a breath of fresh air. We love the way you play the game. Keep playing like that. And I think a lot of people now remember me with the love, the enthusiasm, the passion that I had for cricket. I think that's what people get remembered. Like, I think runs and wickets are great, having a record, right? But I think fans and people, because without fans, we are nothing. They remember that the, the impact you had on the game, you know, and they remember these kind of passages. And yeah, there's a lot of people even now, you know, they love the way I play the game of cricket. Were you always an extrovert growing up? Was that just part of your personality or did, that, did, did you develop that as you went along as a professional cricketer? Yeah, look, I think what ends up happening, your circumstances change. When I was younger, all I was consumed about was me and the ball. That's all I thought the world would exist. <laughs> me and the cricket ball and the nets. That's all it exists. And then once I start becoming better and better, the team starts relying on you. You win games for your team. Then you become a bit more, you have to, you naturally, the circumstances then change you, you become a bit more extrovert. And then you're like, you know, the fans, you know, the world, everyone's watching you. You know, it's, these are all extrovert things. And you end up sort of like taking the balance of thinking, right, when I celebrate, I'm extrovert. But when I'm in my zone, I need to be in. I need to know what's internally the conversation happening. You know, take a deep breath at the top of the mark, focus. Okay, what was I thinking? Right get my fingers over the line, train tracks, you know, <laughs> bowl, bowl, slightly wide crease, going into off stump, get the ball to drift and then turn it away. Now that, you know, I have to then get my mind in that structural order and then I go and deliver the skill, trusting myself. Then when I get the wicket, then bang. So yeah, I think as I've got older, I've become more extrovert. When I was younger, I was probably a little bit more introvert, shy guy. Now I've just, you know, develop more of an extrovert personality. So I can imagine that an important part of dealing with the pressure of a massive crowd that maybe is chanting, singing for the opposition or a very tense moment in a match or, or indeed, Monty, if things aren't going so well, if you've been hit for a few boundaries, I can imagine that muscle memory can come into it, the hours and hours of practice, the hard work that you've put into it. So you have that sort of the grammar of how you bowl to fall back on. And I think Andrew Strauss said of you, and he, of course, was a great England captain and he captained England to the Ashes in 2010-11 abroad. He won the Ashes in Australia, went on to become head of English cricket, director of English cricket. I think he credited you, didn't he, with being a hard worker, for really putting in the hours. 
Yeah, he really enjoyed that about me. He goes, look, Monty, you really work hard. You, 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 um, you know, always doing loads of catches. You're bowling a lot. You're batting really hard. He liked that attitude about me, you know, and 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 that's why, you know, me and him, we we got along really well. He liked that kind of thing about me, you know, and 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 you know, I, I get along very well with Andrew Strauss. So it's true that you worked really hard. Like, can you give us a sense of just how hard you did work and how important it was to mix hard work with talent? Yeah, like, you know, I, I took loads of catches and a lot of fielding work. I did loads of bowling, covering all my angles, bowling to the right-hander, the left-hander, over the wicket, round the wicket, did my batting practice at the end, did some fitness sessions as well. So I just knew I had to work hard. I had to focus my energy on working hard. Like, if I didn't work hard, then... I wouldn't give myself the best chance, you know, to do too well in the England uh, for the test matches. And sometimes when you work hard, it just helps you to relax as well. You know, Inga, I've ticked all my boxes, done all my training, and now I I just go out there and play my cricket. So when you're younger, you're very much like that. You just want to work hard and and, and you want to perform well. Do you prefer playing test matches in England at home or abroad? I'm thinking this because I can imagine it's great to be playing in front of a crowd that is supportive, although the Barmy Army are famous for giving huge support abroad as well. But the pitches for a spinner can be better, can't they, in India than they are typically in England. I mean, I think back to that series, I think it was 2012. It was a fantastic series for England. We beat India 2-1 in India for the first time in many years. And you and Graham Swan were the spin twins for us during that series. And you bowled brilliantly, didn't you? And and as I say, we, we won, which was a huge feat. And they had some fantastic players in that side, the India side. It was the same series that Joe Root made his debut, I think possibly in the last game. There you have a bit of assistance as a spin bowler. So talk to us just a bit about the advantages and disadvantages, perhaps, of playing at home and playing abroad. Yeah, look, at home, I'm, I'm used to bowling with the Duke's delivery, so I'm able to bowl it a bit more quicker into the surface and I get more sharp turn. But when I'm bowling with the SG ball in India, what you end up having is that the red soil, you get a bit more bounce, but you don't get so much quick purchase off the pitch. You get this more, it comes off quicker off the pitch in England than it does in India. In India, you have the clay soil as well, where the ball skids on and the bounce is a bit lower. So, you, so you're trying to get the batsman out trapped in the crease while the red soil the ball bounces more so you're trying to then you're not going to get this you're not going to the ball doesn't come off the surface quicker as it does in England because England there's more pace so you can actually bowl it into the pitch and the ball will turn quickly in India it doesn't turn as sharp so you may get wickets out you know long on long off out in the deep fielders maybe in catches you know by having in and out field but in England, you can have really attacking fields and you can still get wickets. So the, the pace that the ball comes off the pitch dictates the field settings you have as a, as a, as a spin bowler. Take us back to that series in 2006-07, the Ashes in Australia. You come into the team for the Perth test, I think. It's the Wacker, which was a ground that was famous for favouring fast bowlers, Bounce, a bouncy, fiery wicket. And you became the first English spinner in all, of all time to take five wickets in an innings, to take a fiver. Amongst those wickets, you've got the great Adam Gilchrist out, who is a wonderful wicketkeeper batsman. You've got the late, great Shane Warne out as well. You mentioned him earlier. You might even have got Matthew Hayden out. Is that right? Uh, well, get... that was in the second innings. He was, was, he was on 90 and the ball bounced like hip height. But just talk to us about 
that experience, the pride you must have felt, and also how you deal with a crowd that I can imagine must have been quite hostile, you know, in an ashes in Australia, do you use that to your advantage? How, how again, do you deal with the pressure of that? And, and just talk to us through the joy, I imagine, of that success. Yeah, so you, as a person, you're trying to get yourself into a position where you can enjoy the moment. Now, to do that is you, first of all, you've ticked all your boxes as training. You work out, right, what the pitch conditions are. So I looked at the pitch, it was quite grassy. The Kookaburra ball, I felt, was bouncing a bit more in Perth. And I bowled it a bit quicker. And, and with the grass, it will catch and it will turn. Now, if that live grass wasn't there and it was just a flat pitch, then I can't bowl it as quick. I've got to then now give it a bit more air and beat them in the flight. So I felt I was in the game with the new delivery. And then obviously, I remember Andrew Simons hit me for a couple of fours down the ground. And then there was one ball which was off the back foot. He cut it straight to Garrett, Garrett Jones. Great catch. And then Adam Gilchrist got out second ball, hitting the top of his pad. He thought he gloved it. I wasn't sure if he did, but he walked. And I thought, what a, you know, <laughs> honest gentleman there. And then Brett Lee, I got him LBW. And uh, Justin Langer, got him out before lunch. Bold, just missing the line. So, you know, I was... The crowd were obviously enjoying it. Like when I celebrated and taking my wickets, crowd wanted more of that. So I ended up celebrating even more, enjoying myself even more, and people were just loving it. So the whole crowd are enjoying that atmosphere that you end up actually, they encourage you to celebrate even more. And I end up just celebrating every wicket. So I really enjoyed, very much enjoyed that. You mentioned Brett Lee, Monty. And he was one of the fastest bowlers around, one of, probably one of the fastest bowlers of all time. As someone who wasn't a brilliant batsman, but who worked on it, what's it like facing someone who's bowling 90 miles an hour plus? I mean, that is express pace. How do you cope with that? How, what do you do to get through that experience? Well, look, uh, to be honest, I think, I think what it is, right, is that um, what you end up doing is more than anything is it's like facing a bowling machine with Brett Lee. So you know, you're already, your mind is already computing what's going to come your way because of the experiences you've had with a bowling machine. So what you end up doing is you end up having reference reference points. You're thinking, right, this is how Brett Lee is going to face me like a bowling machine. It's going to be to right? So I, I know that in my mind. So when I face him, he is like that. He's, he's quick, but I've practiced it. And then the other thing goes through your mind is I don't want to get hit by the ball because I don't want to injure myself. I don't want to do that. That forces you to watch the ball then. Because when you watch the ball, he's not going to hit you. And there's times you're facing him, but he's got such a beautiful, clear action. You could just you could just see it. It is a lot. It's really easy to see, really easy to spot him. And um, he's lovely to face. Honestly, I, I would love to face Brett Lee. Someone who did not have an easy action was Mutia Littleran of Sri Lanka. You hit him for a six in a test match. Compare the great joy, I imagine, the thrill that that must have given you compared to taking a, the, the wicked of a great test batsman? Well, I think what ends up happening there was I felt like, what did I used to do at club cricket against spinners? I used to sweep them. And it was a my natural shot. And Duncan Fletcher said, because if you don't know which way he's turning, just sweep the delivery. And if you get out, you get out. You can't do anything about it. I looked at it. I thought, I don't know which way this is turning. I can't. I, I'm, I'm trying to look at the seam. It was just a completely different orientation of flight. The way he spun it, the way you can hear the revs. I thought, I'm just going to sweep this. And I just swept it and it hit my bat. And it went for six. I couldn't believe it. And then the next ball delivery came. We hit him down the ground. 
and that was it. I just went with it. And you obviously gave me some awkward looks, but I thought I can't, I don't know which way you're turning it. So I'm just going to sweep you. He was a great bowler. One of the, one of the all-time greats. Mr. Yeah, unbelievable. Like, unbelievable. Brilliant, brilliant bowler. Like one of the best ever. Probably nothing like him, but brilliant bowler. Brilliant. And you only know how good someone is when you face them and you see the orientation, the, the flight of the delivery, the way the scene position is. It's not like a traditional spin-up. It was just unbelievable. Let's stick with batting just for a moment. I mentioned in the introduction those heroic efforts you made against New Zealand in New Zealand, which not that many people would have seen because it was in the middle of the night, it was in New Zealand. But that incredible rearguard effort right at the end in 2009 with Jimmy Anderson that helped save that match and, as I say, tee up the series. Talk us through the pressure of those moments when there is a match on the line and you've got to save it as a batsman, which is not your greatest skill set. Compare that sort of pressure... Talk us through that compared to, say, trying to bowl your team to victory. Well, I think the pressure of bowling your victory is quite simple. What You know you just got to keep bowling your best ball and let the pitch do the work, right? And you, and you don't get phased by the fours or the wickets or whatever because you've got to keep bowling your best delivery. It gets harder when the pitch is flat and you've got to get first inning wickets. You've got to think more. You've got to think about the flight, the way they're going to play, how you're going to deceive them. How do I trap them in the crease and doing that? So you got to think in a different mindset. But when the pitch does the work for you, you've got to just keep it. You you got the, the, the hardest thing is don't get overexcited by the turn. Don't get overexcited by that. So you have to dial it down a little bit and then try and keep bowling your best delivery. But that's as a bowler. Talk us about talk to us about the, the pressure of those innings when you helped save a test match as a batsman. Yeah, I think that was interesting because when you know you're not known for something, you're going to think at some point I'm going to get out and Australia are going to win the test match. But that's the great thing about test cricket. That's the great thing about you know sport is that there's going to, going to be miracles, going to be unpredictable results against the odds that are going to take place. And that's what happened that day. And... I couldn't believe it myself. Jimmy couldn't believe it. But it was that moment, which was that catalyst that changed, you know, the mindset of English cricket versus Australia. It was, again, we had um, Andy Flower said in a year, in tw- eight, 24 months, we want to become the number one team in the world. And that was a catalyst that helped us become the number one in 18 months. We became the number one team. We did one everything. And it's them moments that you, you think, you know what? Any given moment, we can save a test match. Any given moment when we're winning, we can completely, you know, overwhelm a team and beat them as well. So it gives you that sheer self-belief that you're able to do really well in any situation. Do you have a good support structure around you? Have you had a good support structure around you as a, a player? Because I, I read, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but that 30-odd members of your family watched you play in that first series that you played in in India, that your debut test series. We mentioned it earlier when you got Sachin Tendulkar out. Rahul Dravid as well in that same innings, I think. Did you have a good support structure around you as a, a, as a player family? But also maybe did you have a, a life coach of some sort? Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. Look, look. I had a life coach as well, and you know he was always there helping me to focus on cricket. While he, him, and the agent just focused on um, getting, you know, getting me the deals off the field. But on the field, I was just focused on cricket. And the same thing was with you know family and friends. They enjoyed my successes. They they laughed when I missed field, my batting, and everything like that. 
But then there's that obviously internal conversation with myself. How do I get the best out of myself? So you got to get that balance right where, you know, you don't want to get carried away with the family and the friends and everyone around you. And then you're not performing well. You know, you got to be performance is the key. If you're performing well, that's the most important thing. And then after that, the sports structure and everything is really good. But your mind has to be very strong. You've got to have a very strong mind to know that the most important thing for me, my currency is wickets. My currency is good performance. If I'm doing that, family and friends are going to be happy. Everyone's going to be happy. And that where your mindset have to be. So, you know, you've got to be very strong mentally. You've got to keep your mentally, mentally you've got to stay strong. You talk about mental strength and we've talked a lot about the good times. I've struggled at times with my mental health and you've talked about your struggle at times with your mental health. Could you talk just briefly about that and give a sense of where you are, if you're happy to talk about it, where you are with that now? Yeah, look, my mental health is is absolutely great now. I'm absolutely spot on. I know what I enjoy, what I what I, what I can, what I can't do. Um, you know, faith plays a huge part of that. You know, um, my relationship with the universe or relationship with my faith, um, I think it's very important. You know, um, we come alone, we die alone. You know, having being alone, learning to um, being in your own company is very important. It's, it's, it keeps it gives you builds resilience. It makes you stronger. And then after that, if you're in a good place, people around you want to be around you because they like your energy, they like your positivity. So that's when I begin to learn that get your house in order, go to the gym, um, you know, make sure your diet's on point, make sure you know you've done all your let's say stretches, make sure you've done like. Um, whatever gets you into a good frame of mind, listening to my best songs, going for a run, reading a book, um, you know, writing thoughts or um, listening to, you know, the news, the, the, the things that are happening right now, trying to grasp the understanding of that. It helps you within yourself, you know, because if you're in a good place, then people around you want to be in a good place. If you're not in a good place, people don't, well, only so long family and friends will have time for you because then they start thinking is this is taking energy out of mind me and I can't keep you know I can't keep giving that much energy so you've got to help yourself and you know you've got to work hard in making sure um you know you're in a good place so that when people come and meet you they feel positive you know if you're positive then they're positive and and that's how it that's how you need to be I want to stress to people who might be struggling with their mental health that there is help out there and there's always help out there. There's always people who want to help. And I just want to mention the Samaritans number, 116123, that people can call. It's really important that, that I stress that, you know, having been through mental health difficulties myself, and, and I, I went down a route where I talked to a psychologist, I talked to a psychiatrist. In the end, I decided to go on some medication. I'm now off that medication, but I want people to know that there is help out there. And people have different ways of coming out of mental health difficulties, don't they, I think? Yeah, everyone has different ways of doing it, you know. Um, like some people need medication and then once they stop the medication, they they come out of it, they feel a lot better. Others, um, like, it's, it's all different, isn't it? It's like I've had a lot of people talk to me about, you know, faith, you know, even like, you know, famous celebrities and people who struggle with them and they, they go, I want to know more about, you know, what 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 is, why does faith help you? Because I go, faith is something that I don't have to explain to anyone. Do you know what I mean? Because I don't really know it myself, but faith also helps me to then just go into my own world, you know, and 
that's it. It's my relationship with God, right? And that's it. I don't have to explain. I'm not accountable to anyone. You know, it's just me and God and that's it. So I'm a, that helps me a lot. You know, I'm a great believer of that. But that may not help someone who doesn't believe in a God or that I can't explain it because I don't know how to explain that. But, you know, um, then their medication is good for them. You know what I mean? So there's or, so many or, different or, ways or of might, doing yeah. it. Or, or, might, or might be. And we're not mental health experts, but I think talking about mental health, you know, people who are in the public eye, you much more than me, but I've been in the public eye myself. I hope it helps others to realise that they're not alone and that there, that there is help out there. Absolutely. Loneliness is a breeding ground of mental health issues. So, you know, there's people out there that can help you because if you don't, if you're if you're ashamed to speak to your family and friends about it, then um, you should openly speak to, um, you know, the Samaritans and, you know, they're there to help you. That's why they're there. They're there to um, provide you help so you don't feel alone, so you feel good about yourself. And don't be afraid, you know, go out there and get help. It's It takes a brave person to get help. It takes a weak person not to admit to help. And you got to get out of that. you got to get some help. If you need it, go and get it because that's what they're there for. They're there to help you. Final question, and that is, you know, the game has talked a lot about has been dealing with racism recently. How did you find your, you know, growing up in the game and being a success in the game, what was your experience of racism in cricket? In broad, in broad terms, I, you know. With, with, yeah, like I, I didn't, I didn't really understand racism. I didn't really understand what it meant by experiencing racism. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, I remember when I was reporting on 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 football during the Euros and just talking about the England games, and I was in in the underground. It was all just English fans, like skinheads as well, you know. Um, and they looked at me, and there was shouting my name they go oh Monty Monty start taking selfies pictures I, I go wherever I go people recognize you they love taking pictures they love having a chat you know you end up talking and, and it's all so much you know fun spirited stuff so then in my world I'm like oh I don't you know I don't see it that way I don't, I've never experienced it but then when I did my journalism degree you know the lecturers at St Mary's University um, they their their job is to challenge you right their job is to say okay put your journalism hat on now, you know, you're, you're not the sportsman, you know, because I know everyone, you know, any room I go, VIP, whatever, everyone's going to recognise me, right? And 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 that's it. So I'm going to be feel very welcome. People are going to have a, a, a conversation, starters, talk about cricket, talk about this and that. And, you know, you end up feeling, oh, very much, you know, part of the room and you don't really think of it that way. You just think, oh, yeah, like, that's just how society is. But Society's not like that. It's different. You know, it's like, for example, you know, I, I, I just, you know, like I remember, you know, my lecturer trying to talk to me about overt racism, covert racism. I don't really, I never knew what does that mean? What are these terminologies? I don't know what they mean. <laughs> but they said like, you know, this is what, um, these are the types of, you know, issues that they are critical race theory. You know, that was really interesting, you know, talking about, the way you dress, the way you behave, the way your habits are, you you align yourself to them kind of people or, you know, that's naturally what happens, you know. And so that got me really thinking and it, got, it made me understand. And also I'm, I'm an ambassador for Show Racism, the red card, and I'm learning about it continuously. You know, it's a fascinating subject. The politicians will always use racism as a form of power to gain votes, you know. So it's never going to get 
it's never going to come out of society because people will gain votes. You know, you will always have political agendas that's going to help um, different class, different societies to gain votes. So then I can become the person in power. So racism is there for people to have power over other people. And I think that's what it's there for. And um, that's my sort of belief of it. Yeah, I, I hope there are lots of politicians who would never use racism. And I hope that we can, as a society, cleanse ourselves ourselves of it because it, it is still there. And it's so important that we treat each other with respect and with understanding and we're inclusive and that we treat people as other human beings, as basically as, as we would wish to be treated ourselves. Yeah, but these are all just, you know, let's be honest, the world doesn't exist like that. You know, these are just a saying, you've just said something, it will never exist. It will never happen. People people always will create difference. There'll be a difference in colour, there'll be a difference in uh, education, difference in upper class, lower class, ageism, gender, um, you know, religion. You know, there could, there's various, there's so many different ways that you can create a difference between one person and another. It's because you need to gain power over the other person. It's just a form of power. That's all it is. But Monty, not everyone does that. No, but everyone, I believe um, to, to, to really gain, you know, your, there's only one seat as a prime minister. And to become the prime minister, you will have to create policies that favour one, one group of people over another to gain their votes. But not, does that, that, that should not be about someone's race. You might you might decide to tax the higher earners more, or you might decide to tax the middle earners more. That's a political choice, but racism should have no part in it whatsoever, Monty. Well, I know, I know, it shouldn't be. The colour of your skin should have no part in it, and it's a very complex subject, and that's why I still don't really understand it fully. But if someone said to me, look, Monty, and I put it in simple terms, um, if the colour of your skin, you could not play cricket for England, and I didn't experience it. If I experience that, then I'll be like, wow, I understand what it feels like, you know, um, what racism really means. I didn't experience it, right? So I'm not going to, I'm only going to speak of my experience. But if you hypothetically said that, because 100 years ago, that's how it was. There was a black boxer from Manchester, I don't know, name of Len Johnson or something like that. He couldn't, he couldn't fight for the British title because of the colour of his skin. And I thought, oh, my God, imagine if that happened to me now. My colour of my skin, and I wasn't allowed to play for England. But I didn't experience that. But that what it was like 100 years ago. Monty, because you are a great star of the game, we've finished our 20 questions. I want to do about a minute or two of quick fire. One word, two word answers, OK? Who is the greatest batsman you ever bowled at? Sachin Tendulkar. Who was the greatest bowler you ever faced? Shane Warne. What was the proudest moment in your cricketing career? I think Cardiff, saving the test match at Cardiff. What was your favourite ever test wicket? First test wicket, Tendulkar. What was the test match win that you most treasure? Oh, good question. Mumbai. Mumbai. We won in Mumbai 2012. What was the greatest test series win of your career? Probably two series. One in Australia when we beat uh, the Ashes in Australia and India after 27 years in India. How fast were you bowling at your fastest before you became a spinner? Probably 75, 80 miles per hour. 
what was your, roughly speaking, your slowest ball as a spinner in Test cricket? Probably 48, 49 miles per hour. And your fastest? Probably 60, 65. What is your favourite, your, your biggest passion outside of cricket? I think journalism. I really, really love journalism. Who would you support if Luton Town were playing Arsenal in the FA Cup final? Good question. I'll probably have a half a T-shirt on and I'll be a winner. It doesn't matter who wins. If half Luton ha- and half Arsenal. If you, instead of being an international cricketer, had to be an international sportsman in a different sport, which sport would that be? Great question. That's a very good question. Hmm. Very good question. Probably probably a boxer. Are you good at cooking? Yes. Who is your favourite singer in the world? Robbie Williams. Are you a family man? Yes. What is your biggest remaining ambition? To have my own chat show and to compete against Jonathan Ross and Graham Norton on uh, primetime TV called Monty Meets. That's why I do journalism. Monty Padasar, it's been an absolute pleasure asking you my 20 questions and my quick fire. This is the 37th 20 question interview I've done. You're the first person who's got a quick fire set at the end, but it's been most enjoyable. I'm really grateful to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, mate. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you for having me on your show.